Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you don't know me, I'm Ron Young. I'm one of the ruling elders here. I think most everyone in first service knows me. It's maybe the second service because I'm a first service guy. But uh, welcome. Um, we had pastors on vacation and presbytery across the other side of the state yesterday. And that's, you know, when I get the call. Come preach, right? So I'm, uh, I'm in the bathroom uh, before the service hoping my mic isn't on, having conversation with Mark about Presbytery. It reminds me of something, and, and that's this. Um, when, uh, when we're at Presbytery, there's always the people seeking to get ordained and licensed, and they preach. And one of the things that is, to me, is just awesome is that if in that preaching there's not a clear presentation of the gospel, um, they won't make it through. And often we've heard, because I used to be on the Candidates and Credential Committee, um, you'd hear guys say, well, you know, I'm, I'm with a bunch of pastors and elders, and they all know the gospel already. And the reality is, is that um, as pastors and elders who've been around the block, uh, we know that we need to hear the gospel. Like, we need to hear it all the time. So this morning when uh, David was uh, leading worship, this morning I was very grateful because in that I heard the gospel. And uh, today we're going to talk about the ark coming back to Israel, or, well, it was already in Israel, but David bringing the ark to, uh, to be more centrally located um, in Israel. And um, you're going to hear a lot about obedience. You're going to hear a lot about obedience. What I want to make abundantly clear um, and I'll talk about it in the sermon, is this. Um, obedience is always a response to God's grace. It's a response. There is nothing in us, there's nothing in us that merits um, our salvation. God loves you and called him, you to himself because he's God. And this gracious calling is, has nothing to do with your merit, your goodness, your anything. You're a sinner and dead in your tra- trespasses. It's only because Jesus came and lived an obedient life and died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. That's what saves me, is him, not me. And in response to such wonderful grace, we respond in faith and obedience and joy and humility. Now, I, I say this because as I go on, I, I want you to remember this. Always, always, always. God loves you and he's called you to himself not because of you, your goodness. It's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. We are going to fail all the time. This is why old people like me, well, old people like Mark, uh, <laughs> we, need, we need to hear the gospel. So... So today, like I said, the ark is coming. Um, David's uh, uh, returning the ark. Um, so we, we know in the second Samuel began with uh, David hearing of the death of Saul and Jonathan. In chapter 2, he's anointed king of Judah. Chapter 3, the military leader of Israel kind of decides he's going to uh, serve uh, King David, and he brings Israel. He's going to bring Israel along with him, but then he's murdered by Joab. Um, chapter 4, Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, the north, is killed or murdered uh, by Benjamites. Uh, last week we talked about how David is then anointed king over all of Israel, and then he, he just routs the Philistines, the arch enemy of, the, of Israel at the time. Um, this leads us to chapter 6, the, re, the return of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. Your grace, Lord, is uh, the only thing that stands between us and death. And Lord, you are an incredible, awesome, powerful, holy God. And we cannot stand before you apart from the blood of Jesus, your son. I pray, Lord, then as we read and we hear your word, Lord, you would um, kindle within us a, a right understanding and desire, Lord, to serve you, to worship you, to obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm going to, uh, instead of reading the whole thing and then going back, I'm going to read chunks of it and talk about it. hope that's okay with you. Um, so, chapter 2, verses 6, 1 through 5. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, were the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassonets and cymbals. So it's a big deal. Big question is why. So I think I have an image, right, of, of the Ark of the Covenant. There we go. Um, I didn't draw this. I got it online. So here we go. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? So this is the Ark of the Covenant. And during the time of Moses at Mount Sinai, God was instructed um, the Israelites to build such an ark. It's approximately four feet long, about three feet high, and about three feet wide. And it's made of wood with a gold you know, covering. And on the top there, you see the, the, the cover. On top of that cover are those two angels. They're called cherubim with their wings kind of uplifted, and, and that's a guess. We, we don't know exactly what it, what it looked like. And inside the ark, um, the, the tablets of the, the law were put in, um, which was the, the thing that you know, they agreed upon in terms of their covenant relationship between God and Israel. And so those tablets are placed in it, Along with Aaron, who was the high priest, his staff, that the one that, remember, he had this staff and miracles were done, but, but then it budded, like it, flowers came out of it, right? So, so they put that in there, and then they also put a jar of manna. So when they were wandering in the wilderness, um, God gave them this miraculous bread every morning, and they took a jar of that and, and put it in there. And, and uh, commentators talk about the idea that this is kind of showing how um, how God uh, taught, how he uh, led, and how he fed his people. And these things are put in there, this Ark of the Covenant, also called the Ark of, the Te of Testimony, because these things testify to God's goodness and to the fact that God has made covenant with these people. Right? This is there. And here we go. It is that it says here that the Lord of hosts is... Um, uh, his presence is above the cherubim, right? Lord of hosts we, means armies. Like So this morning we sang a song about God being the Lord of armies. And, and that, is, that is who it is. And his presence is there. And when Moses and the people uh, made this and then they carried around with them, the glory of God, his Shekinah, would kind of rest there. Well, they'd, they'd out, go out and lead and, and then they'd put it in the tabernacle and then um, God, Shekinah, his, his physical manifestation of his glory would, would rest there. And, and so when um, Moses or Joshua needed some consultation, they would go before the ark and um, 
and God would give instruction and tell them what to do. It was a big deal. And then they would carry the ark. Um, so think of Joshua, they're going to go into the promised land, and um, they know there's giants living in there. It's a pretty, you know, big thing. They bring the ark, and the priests carry the ark into the River Jordan. It, it dries up, you know, you know, it's up in a heap, and so they walk on dry land. And uh, they, they do the, the thing with uh, Jericho. They walk around it for seven days, blowing trumpets, and the whole thing falls down. And this brings terror into the Canaanites. They feel as if a god has come in uh, with the Israelites. And it was true. God came in with them, and uh, their enemies were, were, were routed. Um, and so that's the Ark of the Covenant. It, the other part to it is that up on there, it's okay, up behind, where that, the, the cover is, is also called the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel is to come into, uh, into where the Ark of the Covenant is in the tabernacle and put the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat so that the, the, the sins of Israel are atoned for. It's a big deal, big deal. And um, David then is, um, has, has wanted that, the Ark of the Covenant, which has kind of laid dormant for a while, just sitting there um, and, uh, in, in the house of Adonabadab, and to bring it uh, to Jerusalem. And, and so there, there's great rejoicing. I mean, this is, this is, it's awesome, right? We got the Ark back. Oh, everyone's praising him, they're celebrating. Uh, lyres, harps, tambourines. It, it is a great cause of celebration that the ark is coming into, the, into Jerusalem. But why, you might ask, was it in uh, Adonadab's house? Why was it sitting there? And that's a, that's a fun thing, um, I'll tell you. So <clears throat> back when Eli was the priest and judge in Israel, uh, the Philistines defeated them, the army of Israel, pretty badly. And so the thought was, hey, <coughs> I know. We can get back to the Philistines. Let's bring the ark out. Let's bring the ark. We'll, we'll go with the big guns. We'll have the ark out, and we'll go fight the Philistines. And uh, God, because his presence, right, he's, we're his covenant people. Uh, God's presence is with us. It also, if God's presence is here with us, it's also that God's presence, he's for us because we're his covenant people, right? And if God is for us, who can be against us, right? That sounds like a good Bible verse. And so the, in that confidence, they grab the ark and they go out to, to war and they're utterly, utterly defeated by the Philistines. I mean, tens of thousands of Israelites are, are dead. And the reason is is because God didn't tell them to do this, right? We've, we've been looking at how David over these last few chapters, every time God, David would inquire of the Lord, what should I do? Should I go attack the Philistines? And God says, yeah, go attack them. So he goes to attack them and he wins. Then, then the Philistines are at it again. Should I go attack the Philistines? No. I want you to go over here, wait until you know, the army goes across, and then go. And, you know, and so David's always inquiring of the Lord and doing it. In this case, they just said, hey, let's, let's use God to defeat our enemies. And it didn't go well. So the ark is, so the ark is in the, with the Philistines. The Philistines are like, oh yeah, we got the ark. But everywhere they put the ark, calamity happened to the Philistines. Uh, they put it in the temple of Dagon, one of their gods, and every day the, the god was prostrate before the, the, the ark. Uh, eventually its hands and feet were cut off, and it was bad. So they, they kept moving it around, and wherever they went, the, there would be... Uh, plagues of tumors and plagues of, of mice and just causing all sorts of problems. So finally, the Philistines says, man, we got to get rid of this thing. So they inquired from their own priests, and they said, well, you, we really defended this God, so let's make a bunch of golden tumors, lovely, and, um, and mice, and we'll put them in the ark, and then we'll, we'll put it on a cart, and, we'll have, and they put two milking, milking cows, like not oxen, but milking cows, they're not used to pulling anything. They're not supposed to pull things. But they use these milking carts, and that their, their thought was, we'll send it on their way, and if it goes to Israel, we'll just let it, that's, that's where the God wants it to be. But if it, if it wanders into our territory, then, we can, then we've appeased this God, and we can, 
continue to use it or however you want to put it. Well, the milking cows went right into Israel and, um, and the people were overjoyed. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, it says this, the people of Beth Shemesh, this is right there across the border from the Philistine territory into Israel, were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up, they saw the ark and they rejoiced uh, at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. They had a great rejoice. Sounds familiar, right? Here comes the Ark of the Covenant. They're, oh, they're excited. Big celebration. Everything is, is great. But Beth Shemesh isn't the house of Adonadab. What happens is this. Um, it says, going into verse 19, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Uh, another translation would say they looked in it. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because God had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of uh, Kiriath-Jerim, which is also um, Baal Judah, same, same place. They, they, they asked, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. And so uh, Adonadab brought it into his house. He's a Levite, and his sons, he and his sons kind of took care of it there. So that's why it's there. The, the ark had come back to them in a great joy and excitement. They decided to worship the Lord, and in doing so, went against what God had said, and he struck down 70 of them. And so it just stayed there through the time of Samuel, through the time of Saul, and now David is king. Let's get the ark back. And so everyone's excited. Yes, the ark of the covenant is back. It's just this great time of celebration. So let's, let's see what happens next here. Chapter uh, 6, Second uh, Samuel 6, 6 through 10. And when they came to the threshing floor, so they've been coming and celebrating and singing and dancing, you know, the whole works, they come to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah, one of the two sons of Adonadab, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and struck, God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Okay. Boy, it sounds like there's some foreshadowing in that first Samuel passage, right? Here they're worshiping. They think this is a great thing. And then God strikes 70 of them dead. Why? Well, they, they didn't obey God. So God has some very specific instructions he gave to his people about the Ark of the Covenant. One of those things is that you don't look in it. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to look into it. Second thing is, the only people who can minister to the Lord in front of the ark are the high priests. So in the tribe of Levi, there was a branch of that tribe of Aaron. Remember, Moses and Aaron were Levites. Aaron and his family and his descendants are the high priests of Israel. Only high priests can minister before the Lord, not anybody, and, and not the and not, the, um, uh, not even normal Levites. They have to be one of the high priests. Uh, also, the way it's transported, specifically, God says it can only be transported by human beings, Levites, using poles. 
So on the ark, there's like these rings that they put the stave through. Uh, you, you saw it on that image. And, and they're supposed to carry the ark of the covenant. So just like the first time when it, when it comes on a cart from the Philistines and they, they start offering sacrifices and doing things that God did not prescribe and that went against God's law, like looking into it, he struck down 70 now here we have, they're bringing the ark back and these two, these Levite, this Levite family who should know better put it on a new cart and, and brought it along. And it gets to the threshing floor and now there's a couple things in the Hebrew that are weird. I'm not a Hebrew expert. I'm just gonna go with what commentaries tell me. And that is, it seems that there's some discrepancy as whether um, the, the, the oxen are stumbling or that they let them loose because it's a threshing floor and it's a good place to eat, right? They have grain, and you're not supposed to muzzle ox when they're threshing grain, and probably. And so we, and we also don't know um, what it means that he's grabbing hold of it. If we see that they're stumbling, it might be that he's steadying it. Um, if they let it go, it might be some other reason he grabs holy ark. And I think, my, my humble opinion is this. If God wanted it to be more clear, he could have made it more clear. And you might be asking, well, why didn't he make it more clear? Probably so we wouldn't quibble about things. Basically, what's going on is whatever it was, he broke his law. He disobeyed God and reached out and took hold of the ark. Now, it may be he had the greatest of intentions, that he was trying to stabilize the ark because the oxen stumbled, and that, that would be a legitimate translation, it's still breaking God's law, despite his good motives. Despite his good motives. So let me tell you one point that is over and over again displayed in God's word. You ready? Your motives don't count. It's, it's not your motives. It, what God wants is obedience to him. But, but Ron, doesn't God look at the heart? Yeah. In terms of obedience, right? So there's, there's like, if you look at it this way, there's, there's two kinds of people, people who obey God and those that disobey God, right? But under the category of obedience, there's two types. People obey from bad motives and people obey from good motives, right? So God looks at the heart. There's lots of people who do good things or Christian things, but their heart is far from God. They're doing it for whatever reason, whether to look good in front of other people or Maybe I'm trying to earn brownie points before God. And I've, I've been saying this prayer because I really, really, really want this thing, so maybe if I do a few good things, God's gonna notice and, right, I'm gonna try to manipulate God. Stop doing that. It doesn't work. First of all, it doesn't work. Don't try to manipulate God. The idea here is this. Disobedience is always bad. It doesn't matter your motivation. It's always bad. Don't disobey. Obedience isn't always good, right? It, it's, it's both obey and good heart. Well, who, who can stand in such a holy God? Who, who can do that? Can, can, I can't, right? I've been at this for a long time. I can try to be obedient and I can try to have a good motivation for everything or try to be pure in my thoughts or motivations. I fail all the time. I, I fail all the time. What's this passage trying to get us to understand is that obedience is the key and what we'll always come up with is that we can't be righteous. I can't be righteous. You cannot be righteous. We can't. We're fallen human beings, and we're always going to come at things with mixed motives. There's always going to be something wrong. 
I'm impure. But thanks be to God. Christ has saved me. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, those, those mixed motives, those things that we attempt that are less than satisfactory to such a holy God, he makes good. So why would I, tr- why would I even try to be obedient? Because God in his graciousness has given to us his spirit And by the power of his spirit, he takes our weakness, he takes our frailty, he takes our um, inadequacies, and out of that, God makes good. Uzzah is dead, David is angry. You ever get that way? I mean, I thought about this passage, like I... I love it when Dan says, hey, preach on this, and I look at it and I go, okay, that could be two really good sermons or three pretty good sermons, and I have to do one. But I've had times when I've been angry at God because God acted according to God's own will and purpose, and it wasn't mine. You ever been there? Often I I say that I'm seeking understanding, like I want to know why God did this. I want to know why. Think of Job. Job has his kids and they, they die in these horrible calamities. And Job is, the whole book of Job is Job asking God, why, why God? And the answer Job gets from God is, you're man, not God, you wouldn't understand. All right. Let's move on. Right? Anyone else dissatisfied with the book of Job? I, I had a girl in my youth group when I was a youth pastor who died, and I was studying this stuff, and I try to figure out stuff. I'm reading Job, and I'm studying, and I get to the end of Job, and it's like, what? I don't know why. Because I'm man and not God. And so are you. What's God's plan? What's his purpose? We can, we can make some guesses, but I, I will tell you this. The outcome of this was really good for David because after his anger, David developed a proper fear of God. A proper fear of God. This is one of the hard things I will say about the American church is this because we haven't lived under really any suffering or persecution, because we've lived in a nation so blessed and so uh, with abundance everywhere, it, it can get really easy for us to say, oh, look, things are good, therefore God blesses us. God is for us, who can be against us, yay. And then we start treating God as if he's, you know, my genie or we begin to think of him in such comfortable terms that we're no longer fearful of him. We begin to think obedience to him is somehow optional. We begin to think somehow that our motives do matter, that it's more about who I am than really what God wants. And it's a horrible place to be. It's a, let me repeat that. That's a horrible place to be. God is a holy God he loves you tremendously, but he is a holy and powerful and awesome God. And if we don't have reverence for him, if we don't fear him, our tendency is to continue on a path that's not great. Here David, David is just beginning his kingship, and it is so important for him to have a proper grasp of who this God is. And he's angry at first, But that anger turns to a fear of God. He becomes afraid of him in a good way. And what we see is the judgment of Uzzah becomes the means by which David fears God. And how does he fear God? Well, let me go into one little quick thing because the next point is going to be Obed-Edom. But um, 
Yeah, let me move on to Obed-Edom. First of all, who is Obed-Edom? Sounds like a great... Someone should have a son and call him Obed-Edom. It sounds cool. Um, Obed-Edom is another Levite. Even so, it says a Gittite. That always throws people for a loop. A Gittite means someone from Gath. And we think of Gath, we think of Goliath. Goliath is from Gath. That's where the Philistines are. But if you look at Scripture, when um, the people were going to come into the Promised Land, God gave different territories to the different tribes, and with the tribe of Levite, he gave them different cities in which to dwell. And Gath was one of the cities that the Levites were to have. They were supposed to be there. So, so most likely what happened is that at some point, this is where Obed-Edom's family had lived for many years before the Philistines came up. And, uh, and they, they either left or they stayed there, I, I don't know. But he's known now as the Gittite, but he's another Levite. So let's look at 6, uh, 10 through 28. So David was not willing to take the, Lord, the ark of the Lord to the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord... Blessed Odin, Obed-Edom, and all his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went with and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, okay, now hear that, those who bore it, it's not on a cart anymore, people. They're bearing it. They go six steps. Um, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a fine linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sounds of the horn. I'll stop there for just a second. So so Odom Edom is, a, Edom is a Levite. People are afraid of, of the ark. They're afraid that God's wrath has gone against Uzzah. It might be out for them. In other words, this might have been a big mistake. Who, what are we going to do? It's not going to go back to Abinadad, and, and their, their son is dead now. And Obed-Edom, another Levite, receives the ark. So in faith, he receives the ark. And over three months, God blesses everything. Now, we don't know what that looked like, but I'm pretty sure it was, uh, it was so obvious to everyone that it, it took the notice of people that went and reported it to King David. And this changes King David's uh, ideas. I, he's, he has proper reverence and fear for God, but now he sees that God is still for the people we, we just need to respond right. So how does David respond? Well, proper fear, which led to obedience, right? Now we have Levites bearing the ark like it's supposed to. They're, they're, they're having a little bit more reverence as they, they go along. Uh, multiple sacrifices. When it says that David sacrificed, it doesn't mean that David's the one doing the sacrifice. It means David's the one pointing out when to do it. He's the one that's supplying the sacrifice. But the sacrifice over and over again, every six steps, that would be a very long trip for a short distance. But there's also great rejoicing. He dances with all his might. And he puts on this linen ephod. So let me talk about those things for just a second. Dancing with all his might sounds kind of cool. Um, we don't know what that looks like. Evidently, the Hebrew for it means some sort of semi-circular kind of dance as opposed to a full twirling dance. I am unstudied in Hebrew dancing. If I had more time, maybe I would have researched it more. But the idea is, is that there is a group of people who are doing a particular type of dance before the Lord. Throughout Scripture, you see 
um, times when people dance before the Lord. Um, usually, it was in most times in the early, it was groups of women, but it also men were included. Um, David puts on this linen ephod, and, and much is going to be made of this. This linen ephod is um, the dress of the Levites, not the ephod of a high priest who would do the sacrifices, but of a Levite, a server of the ark or server of the, the tabernacle or temple. In other words, the group doing these dances are Levites who are the, the servants. It's the, um, I would put it as like, they're, they're like the, the deacons and the janitors are the ones dancing. David is the king, and he puts on, he puts on the garment of a server and goes and dances with everyone else. In other words, it's an act of humility. The fear of the Lord produced not only obedience, it produced great joy, and it also produces humility. David knows he's nothing, he's not greater than everyone else. I mean, positionally he is as king, but I was going to say ontologically, um, but... <laughs> But in in sense of just being an, uh, uh, before God, there, no one has an advantage. No one has an advantage. I we used to have when I was in elementary school. This um, uh, base, baseball was huge when I was growing up. And I, I, I long for those days. But um, we were always playing baseball. My my friends and I. We were on Little League. My team, Lawson's Market. Uh, we won the city championship when I was in fifth grade, and it was great. The Flamingos, who were, was a fast-pitch softball team uh, of seventh and eighth grade girls, also won the city championship, and so there's always this debate. We could beat, we could beat them, right? We, we're guys. You know, we're, you know, we could beat them. And, you know, and, then the, and then other girls in our classes, no, you can't. My sister's on there. They'd squash you. And we'd have these little arguments. Now, imagine if... We had a game, the, the Lawson's Market and the Flamingos had a, had a baseball game or fast pitch softball game, right? And we, we, we duked it out, it was great. And the winner um, played the New York Yankees. Would it matter? Would it matter who won the game? It would be so pathetic, right? There's no way we could even, I mean, it would, we'd have no hits, right? It would, it would just be ugly. In the same way, when you look at humanity and you look at, oh, the kings and the powerful people and the, the great ones and then, and then those who are uh, on, on the lowest of the low and the beggars, and the, what difference does it make before a holy God? What difference? Nothing. It matters nothing. We are all in the same boat. The rich, the poor, the slave, the free, the male, the female, the Jew, the Gentile, we're all in the same boat, and that is we're nothing before God. But in Christ, we're his sons and daughters. In Christ, we're one. In Christ, we're one. But not as nothing, but as his children. It's so awesome. David takes off his kingly garment, puts on the linen ephod, and dances before the Lord with everyone else. So God responds to Edom, Obed-Edom, with, with a blessing. David responds to this blessing, to this, this goodness of God's presence. He responds with great fear. He responds with obedience. He responds with joy and with humility. And that's, folks, what we should be doing, right? That true worship, recognizing who God is and in fear, obey his word, rejoice in him, and humble ourselves just as Christ humbled himself for us. But wait, there's more. Let me, go, let me continue on to the end. Uh, because we got to talk about Michael. 
So as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all people departed, each to his house. I should say that uh, something about food, like good worship has food involved. I, I will. Anyway, I'm moving on. And David, re- see, could be a whole other sermon. Okay. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, uh, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you had spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So Michael was um, David's original wife. And we read in, uh, you read in 1 Samuel, um, she really loved him. And he did a, you know, David was very familiar in the household of Saul, best friends with Jonathan, Michael's brother. David played harp for Saul. They were both very familiar with each other growing up. And she had a great love for David and helped him, even when her own father was trying to kill, uh, kill him. And yet, there was just something about this idea of humiliation that she just couldn't stomach. She just did, couldn't, it's like, could not respect him for this. And perhaps he was, you know, as the daughter of King Saul and now married to the king of Israel, she was hoping that, you know, or expecting that he'd be more dignified, that he would see himself above all these vulgar people. David was correct. He is the king of the people of Israel, and he's one of them. And before the Lord, I'll abase myself even more. I'll take on the form of a servant. I'll serve. I'll dance. I'll humiliate myself. That is the right and proper thing to do. The presence of the Lord, and as one of his people, reminds us of a lot of how David points us to Jesus. Jesus was God, and when he came to earth, he gave up his divine prerogative and became a form of a human being. Someone had to wipe his, you know, change his diapers. People had to, you know, blow his nose. and He grew up with scrapes on his knees and He lived poor. He had to earn his living as a carpenter until he started his ministry at the age of 30. His earthly father died when he was young. He suffered under all the conditions that you and I have. He became one of us. He served. His last supper, before he was going to go to the cross, and he knew his disciples were going to betray him, and or one of his disciples would betray him and the others were going to scatter and abandon him. And, and what does he do? He takes off his outer garment, hum- humiliates himself, and washes their feet, knowing in advance that he was going to be betrayed. Our Savior, our Lord, would abase himself and humiliate himself. And this is good and proper for us to do the same. 
presence of the Lord, this holy God that we serve, a proper response to him are these things, to properly fear him and so obey his word, to be obedient to him, to humiliate, to be humble, and of course, to worship him in great joy. One last thing. Um, if we were to look through all the scriptures where people, God's people messed up, especially with worship, and the incredible negative consequences that came, it would be a longer, uh, a much longer sermon. If you're new to uh, the Presbyterian Church, Jacob's Wells, a PCA church, um, we follow something called the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the things that uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith does, uh, we as elders uh, make vows that we're going to, oaths that we were going to uphold these things. And part of our job as elders, as shepherding the people, is to help make sure that we're not worshiping God wrongly. And we have something called, it's called the regulative principle, right? So you might come to our church and see that we have a very simple service, right? It's, it's not extraordinary. You'll notice there's no pictures of God or Jesus around here. There's all sorts of, um, no frills. Part of that is the regulative principle is this. Uh, in Westminster Confession of Faith 21 says this, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. So nature so shows that. Every human being is accountable to that because that's what nature shows. But, the confession goes on, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So, as uh, Presbyterians, as a Reformed faith, we take that's the stance, right? So if, if God prescribes it in worship, then we do it. If God doesn't prescribe it in worship, we, we shouldn't. One big example is this, and you know, the, the uh, people have debated what does it mean when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, in the Lord's Supper. Take and eat, it's my body, this is my blood. And over time, the Catholic Church has said, using Aristotelian metaphysics, well, the substance of it has changed from bread and wine to his body and blood, but the accidents of you know, the taste and smell of bread and wine remain the same. And so the reverence they'd have for the body and blood of Jesus was, was is that because they see it as actually changing into the body and blood of Jesus. And in their services, they would see this as an opportunity to hold before God, the body and blood of Jesus, as a way of re-sacrificing or re-presenting of, of his sacrifice, that that act is going to then uh, give us the grace we need. Um, by the time Martin Luther was around, people would often walk into the service just to see the priest lift up the bread and the wine to God and say, hoc est corpus, this is you know, my bread, hoc est meum corpus, but this is my, my body. Um, of course, the people in the front rows heard hocus pocus. I don't know if you knew that's how we got the word hocus pocus. Um, but they would see this magical transformation and see that the, that the Christ has been re-sacrificed and then they'd walk out because now they figure they're fine. Then later on, I, um, I believe it was even St. Norbert himself who instituted this way of um, looking at taking some of the bread and the wine, or taking the, the host and uh, 
putting it in a, they call it a monstrous so you can look at it, and then um, practicing the adoration of the, well, if this is really Jesus, then we can worship it. We can adore it. We can venerate it. We can, you see how it kind of goes? These are inventions of men. Jesus said, take and eat. And now what are we doing with it? We're, we're displaying it around and people are kneeling. And, and Luther changed. He said, he, took, he said, no, no, no. Christ's sacrifice is once for all. So he lifted up in front of the congregation and say, you know, basically, this is for you. And that, that sounds really great. It, I like that a lot. In fact, I'm like going, oh, theologically, that's really cool. It's not what Jesus said. He said, take and eat. Take and eat. So we, our services become very simple, but part of it is we don't want us to fall into error. In the, in the Corinthian church, people are eating and drinking communion, you know, having communion wrongly, and some were dying and getting sick. We, we, want, we want worship to be directed by God. And so there are things that we do and things that we don't do. And, and if you're confused about that, um, come talk to one of us, and we'll kind of show you why we do what we do, why we don't do some of the things that you might be familiar with. But the regular principles, look, if God is interested in worship and he's told us how to worship, we need to obey Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, that through him we have salvation. Lord, we look at people like Uzzah, we look at people like uh, Michael, and often we feel sorry. We, we kind of can see ourselves in that. But God, we know that the only way out is to receive your grace, to humble ourselves, to seek your face. Help us, Lord, to have proper fear of you, and so in turn obey you, fear you, love you, rejoice in you, and humble ourselves before you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.